As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes adult film stars and sportsmen drag racers big jet how are you luke i am well i am well i, I you know i i know this the subject of this show that the listeners are about to listen to and it's possibly one of the worst we've ever had but You're i will beg about this yeah, I'm very uncomfortable about it, but I will beg the listeners, uh, if you've gotten to this point and you're you're wondering like, oh my gosh, what am I fixing to listen to? Please just, you know, listen as long as you can and, and offer some kind of feedback uh, just to know, just so I know that y'all are still out there and you still love me because I'm, I'm really not liking the subject of this show. This is actually one of my favorite episodes and full transparency. We recorded this a while back, knowing that we would we would need something while I was on this this West Coast excursion. And full transparency again, as you're listening to this, uh, it's the week of the Spring Fling Million. Obviously, we'll cover that next week. Uh, I'm pretty busy out here racing, so we recorded this in advance. Um, and next week, we'll not only cover the Spring Fling, we'll also rehash the Capital City two fifties and a hundred grander. Uh, that we led up to last week. Obviously, that, as you listen to this, has already happened. Uh, we'll discuss the, the big happenings from that event as well. But for today's show, again, kind of a replay of a, of a prior discussion that Jed and I had, and the, the, the catalyst behind this was one of our listeners basically reached out to me and said, you know, I listen to you guys every week on the show, 
And I'm familiar with your story, mainly because I have shamelessly self-promoted for my entire racing career. Like if you want to know anything about me, you can find it, right? Jed, on the other hand, like we listen to you every week. We laugh with you every week. We heard you on the mic for years, but I think it's fair to say that the, the majority of our listener base doesn't necessarily know a lot about you. And within the, the context of this conversation, I, who I, I've called your friend for close to two decades at this point, I learned things that I didn't know about you. So I thought this was a lot of fun. I know you can't say that. Um, and, and in your mind, this probably wasn't a lot of fun, but this is an opportunity to get to pull back the curtain a little bit and understand uh, what's behind Jed, what's behind some of the things that he says, thinks, feels, where that comes from, and uh, just a little bit of his background all the way up through racing. Is there anything to add to that, Jed? I think you summed that up, Luke. Uh, uh, people don't know my story because people don't really want to know it. It's not very interesting. So um, that's the main reason, but certainly um, it was fun to tell. I, all kidding aside, you know, you come up with the idea to let's get to know Jed a little bit better and hear his story. And that's uh, that's humbling to say the least that, that anybody might want to stick around and hear that. But um, I've had a blast racing. I've had a blast, uh, you know, in my early part of my career, I've I've certainly enjoyed the latter part of it, and um, I've, you know, been able to accomplish a lot in the sport, not necessarily in terms of championships and win lights and all those things. I've just been able to, to get to do a lot of cool stuff in this sport uh, as a result of the position that I was fortunate to fall in. So, um, it's, you know, it's a fun story to tell, and I hope the, the listeners enjoy it, and I certainly appreciated the opportunity to, to get to do it. So hopefully. All big Jed, all the time, nothing but. But first, PJ North. All right, Jed. So we're on the heels. We're, I don't know, a few weeks, a month ish removed from the episode that we did that uh, you came up with the topic for that I loved. It was our, our best three years ever, kind of a retrospective on our racing careers. And, and it was amazing how much our insights ran parallel to one another. And it was definitely not our normal content. It got, it got more sentimental, I think, than I had anticipated coming in. But I really enjoyed it. And we really got positive feedback from it for the most part. Um, now I'll say this, like that won't be the norm. This is, this is off season content type stuff, but I think it's fun to mix things up a little bit. And that specific episode, Big Jed, it sheds some light on some things that I didn't even know about you. And we go back a ways, right? And yeah. combine that with a listener's suggestion that we received actually prior to posting that show. And it was, hey, I would love to get to know Jed better. And at first I responded to that a little bit like you did, Jed, like, eh, we all know Jed. And then I thought about it. You're a pretty fascinating guy. And everyone hears you with your calls on the mic over time, right? Your opinions here on the show, but I'm not sure that many know the background, like the, the, who you are as a racer, where you come from, the twists and turns that led you to where you are today. So that's the purpose of today's show. Well, Luke, uh, again, um, well, shout out to Jim Cornette, because I, I know that, 
that uh, being told by producer Mark, Jim Cornette asked for this specifically. So Jim, I could have called you and, and run this by you, you know, in 10 minutes or so. Uh, and, and I would have told you everything I've ever accomplished in racing and about two of those. And in the other eight, we would have just chatted about what you were eating for supper or something. But um, I do appreciate very much anyone out there that would be interested in hearing my story, Luke. But I mean, quite frankly, it's not, it's not very interesting. I don't think something tells me that your tremendous interview skills will turn it into something a little better than what it is. So I'm ready. I think uh, the listeners already download the show. I'll apologize to you guys uh, first uh, right off the bat here. And uh, if you can stomach the rest of this, thank you for listening, but ready to knock this out. Luke. I do, I do like the way that you frame this off there. You're like, hey, in the introduction, should we should we drop something like, hey, we got John Four Don Garlitz on the show, you know, yeah. to get some interest. And then we you came to the to quick conclusion, like, no, if they get to that point, they already downloaded the show. We don't really care. Yeah, it's really, really, we just needed your download. But, you know, if you want to listen, <laughs> it, it would have been a little bit tricky. But if you want to listen, go ahead. All right, so we got some insight into your racing background when we did the, the the best three years reflection and i know that come from a racing family i know that your father was a mechanic that you got to start behind the wheel at an early age but take me back a little bit further than that like if i ask you what is your earliest racing memory what's the first thing that comes to mind well luke that's an interesting question um and it you know, I could take that a different, in different directions. My earliest memory of being at the races was probably six years old, um, but I didn't really care what was happening on the racetrack. I was, we played cup ball back then, Luke. That would have been about 1977. We played cup ball. Okay, fill, went, fill me and the listener in. What does is, what is cup ball consist When of? you went to the concession stand and got you a Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola um, they gave you a cup that said Coca-Cola on it. And when you were done, you would take that cup and just crush it down into a ball. And we pitched it to one another and hit it by hand. And so we just played our, our form of baseball out somewhere in the pits out of the way. Um, then getting involved in the racing, probably at about eight years old, uh, I was the kid that would go for my father and my uncle for their stalker, stock eliminator Chevy 2 or Chevy 2 wagon, whatever they were running at the time. I would take the wagon, which had big tires in the back and little tires in the front. It was a really cool wagon. Had a, little nice. rake. Okay. had a little rake to it. It was painted just like the car. It was incredible, but I digress. Uh, I would take that wagon and go get a couple of five-gallon jugs of water to cool the cars down because you had to take the radiator hose off of it back then and drain the water because the water pump only turned when the engine was running. It wasn't fancy like you kids got now. Um, it was... Uh, it was, you know, really car get really hot. So it was always muddy around the, the water spigot. And I would go get a couple of five gallon jugs of water and bring them back. So earliest involvement in being part of the racing action was then. And then, of course, um, being 13 and, you know, my older brother racing and me racing, getting started racing. Uh, that was the first on track stuff, which I talked a little bit about in the, the best three years show. So. Were you ever the, in charge of the Dawn bottle full of VHT? 
<laughs> we uh, we didn't uh, we didn't put our own stuff in the bleach box. <laughs> we uh, we just burned out in the in the little bit of water they had there. So no, I didn't get to do any of that. I didn't get to slick them up for the for the good burnouts. There was there was only one track that my my father frequented where I, maybe that was accepted. But yeah, I, that was quite the rite of passage to to get to do that. That was a big deal. Yeah, um, it was a big deal to do that for sure. How now? I mean, at eight years old, like you're in, I don't want to say you're in charge necessarily, but you're actively involved in, you know, the, the cooling, the prep from round to round. Is it fair to say that you were involved in some level on the mechanical side from a pretty young age or no? Well, I'd like to think I was. Um, I certainly didn't get involved in anything serious, but, um, you know, probably about the time I turned 10, uh, I had already been helping my father in the yard. Um, my older brother's about four and a half years older than me. He was starting to get into his teen years. He was working on his own car. My dad would work on cars in the yard after he worked on them for a living all day. So I would help him and he could tell me, Hey, take the, knock the valve covers off of this car or, you know, pull the belt off of it. And I would figure it out eventually 10, 11 years old. So, um, probably from that point on, I could, I could do some small stuff. I do specifically remember taking the liberty of uh, rearranging the the spark plug wires on like this old Nash Rambler that my father had that no one knew the firing order of. He was really proud of me on that one. Oh, yeah. I bet like he was. To, yeah, it took like a week to get that. Um, <laughs> Y'all didn't just Google it? You didn't go to the really, Googler? <laughs> it wasn't really a thing in 87. You know? um, <laughs> so... In the, the three-year reflection episode, you you went pretty in-depth on, on your first win, right? And, and getting the opportunity to race at a young age and then transitioning that into your first big victory. And then we kind of had a gap there because I think the next year that you highlighted was the, the glory days of B&M. Like there's a pretty big gap in between there of what, 13, 14-year-old Jed and 30-year-old Jed, right? Yep. I'm curious, was there a moment in time that you remember thinking, you know, I might be pretty good at this. Um, I wouldn't say there's a, just a specific moment, but the first time I won a quote unquote big race was at Lassiter Mountain Dragway. I won a thousand dollar to win race and 1994 and I thought that was the most incredible thing that well I say that first time I ever won a big foot brake race I won a pro race at the age of uh, 17 no at 16 I won a pro race at the age of 16 I actually lost my father's car off of the trailer on the way to the track because it only had one chain in the front and it didn't have park that's a that's a story. I may have to tell that one somewhere down the road, but we've I, got uh, time. I got to hear this. Okay. Well, you've been to Lassiter Mountain, so for those have. that haven't, you turn off the main road and you go up a fairly significant hill. Obviously, it's called Lassiter Mountain. So when you go up that hill right off the main road, Luke, you, I don't know if you remember it very well, but you turn right right at the top of that hill, and it it was a pretty good little bump. Now, I was pulling the race car, lived three and a half miles from the track. No big deal. I'm pulling the race car. I'm pretty excited, and I want to get there, you know. I mean, I'm fixing the race pro, 
and my father's 68 Cutlass. So I'm pretty jacked. And um, I get to the top of that hill and I, I bang her pretty good through a pothole. And she rattled a little loose on me. Uh, it was just one of those binders that, you know, you just pulled and clicked down. And I didn't have any protection that was holding it down. So I was only going three and a half miles. And I'd never lost a car or never been to where we lost a car. So it should be fine. Now, now she got loose on me, Luke. And um, for whatever reason, my father just kept a chain around the rear axle. Uh, just wrapped it around it and hooked it. Like if this thing ever does get loose, this chain will grab it. You know, it couldn't roll, but about maybe a foot and that chain, the slack would be out of it and it would grab it if that binder ever come loose for any reason. But what's the chances of that happening? So I get to the top of that hill, hit the pothole. I'm already pointed. I've got the trailer pointed with the truck away from the main road because you're going around a curve. So it's just woods on the bottom end of that hill. And she, she come loose. And I heard, the, you know, a big bang. I look in the mirror and the cars rolled back just a little bit. And of course, I jabbed the brake on the truck, stab it, stop right where I'm at. Well, the, the car had reached the point where the chain grabbed it. So had I stopped slowly without panicking, I would have been fine. But my, my quick jab of the brake rocked the car forward just a little bit. And it rocked it just enough where that chain just, it was just a hook on a, on a link and just pff, fell down. And there goes the car. And I, Luke, I know you've, you've raced a lot of nice stuff, but surely you've been in a car that don't have park and you've, you've heard that distinct sound of it trying to grab the park paw. And I am chasing this thing down the hill with zero chance of catching it, zero. And my father's 68 Cutlass, steel bumper Cutlass, hit about a four inch pine tree and picked the rear tires up off the ground about 10 inches to a foot. So I'm like, okay, well, this is bad, but it don't look like it's kind of backed up in the trees a little bit. Don't look like anything's damaged. So I'm just going to weasel my way back there and push it off this tree and see, you know, try to load it back up. Well, that didn't work. Uh, it was on the tree pretty good. And that, that pine had grabbed it pretty good. I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong. This is the only way into the racetrack, right? Yes, sir. It's one Are there racers passing you during this dilemma? No, um, uh, I was uh, I was just 16 times so i was a little bit early uh, okay. but i was getting there so i could get the good parking you know so i'm <laughs> i'm beating all this is friday night racing so i'm beating all the working folk there and um I, there's a few people there but nonetheless i'm like well crap i can't get this thing off of the the tree so i drive the extra probably three quarters of a mile or so or whatever it is to get in the gate and i pull in the gate with just an empty trailer and they're like hey uh you don't have a race car. So, yeah, I got one. I just don't have it on my trailer. Okay. Well, that, so what are you doing? Well, it turns out it's back down here about three quarters of a mile in the trees. I lost it coming in. And um, there was a, a friend there that had a four-wheeler. And he said, um, look, let's, let's ease down there and, and see if we can just pull it off of the, pull it off of the tree or it might've been a three-wheeler, whatever it was. He said, let's see if we can just pull it off the tree. 
I'm like, okay. So we take a chain down there. I ride down there on the back of that little uh, scooter and he hooks to it and it pulls right off the tree. I survey the damage. There is none. The, the tree certainly took all of the damage. The car was not even scratched. Uh, and it rolled about, just so people have some kind of frame of reference here, it rolled about 100 feet downhill. So it was, it was getting after it pretty good, but that park paw was trying its best to help me. Boy, it was giving it everything it had. So it was slowing it up just a little. And uh, so I, I, I jump in the car, drive it in the gate, drive it up there about three-quarter mile and pull in the gate. Uh, first time I ever won a Super Pro race was that, that night. night yep i beat <laughs> i beat the legend now you won't know him but i beat a legend in the in the, the birmingham and, and central alabama area named pete skyro i've heard a, you talk about him yeah pete skyro was a legend and um we we got to the final and uh i uh, i was running about 808 and pete was going like 560s in a roadster and this is in the late 80s now this is serious business this thing would roll and um i uh, i said pete um you want to you want to split this up i don't i don't really know what you want to do here and he laughed and he said son there won't be no splitting tonight i mean he had me beat i'm a i'm a kid i'm racing a 80 cutlass and uh, i just you know i pulled it off a tree just to get it in the track so pete's got me beat and my wind light come on and i got that got that thousand dollars and that was amazing and I uh, took that in. My father was in the bed. It was like a little after midnight, and I rolled in there and I just woke him up. And I threw that money on his on his bed. And you're talking about serious business in the late '80s, right? To win a thousand bucks, and uh, you know, my dad, my dad was super excited. I was super excited. It was just, it was the most amazing thing ever. So I don't, I don't even know what we were talking about, but that's uh, that was a big deal. Oh, the the whole um, realize I could be pretty good. And, um, but I didn't win much of anything after that turned out that was pretty lucky. And, uh, again, right there in 94, when I won that thousand dollar foot brake race, um, I started thinking I'd had pretty good results up, you know, leading up to that and started thinking, you know, this is, this is, uh, something I might be really good at for a while. Turned out I wasn't, but I thought I was going to be. And did it just kind of snowball from there at 94 lead up to what was your heyday, early 2000s? Uh, heyday on a, on a bigger scale. Yeah. Early yeah. 2000s. But um, as I mentioned in the, the best three years, I was in the mid nineties to early 2000s. I was going to 35 or so finals right. a year and winning 25 of them. I, my best year, I think I won 33 races out of out of um and it was like out of 37 finals i mean it was incredible win percentage but you Racing know I, how often like two nights a week or every every week was two nights a week and right. sometimes i would get to go three sometimes i'd go to fulton mississippi and race on sundays and uh, you know i'd race around here on friday and saturday so yeah i was i was racing a lot and what lassiter mountain friday bama saturday or yeah, we'd go to Bama Saturday. Um, every once in a while, we would go to Holiday Beach. Uh, at the time, Holiday Beach is a place I love now, and I, I would race there every week if I could. 
Um, but back in those days, Holiday Beach was a little bit of a different place. They really didn't, they didn't want you there if you were, mm. if you were a pretty good racer and you, you come from somewhere else. So, um, I actually drove my little street car down there to race one night because everywhere else was going to rain and they were really busy and, and they were used to people pulling their race cars in. I, I pull up to the gate and I, the guy says, uh, it'd be $10. He said, just pull it over here, right here in the parking lot. I said, uh, you can park by whatever, you know, that black truck. And I was like, sir, I'm going to race. I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to race it. And he said, no, no, you ain't racing tonight. Uh, you just need to park it over there in the, in the parking lot. And I said, why can't I race? I said, are y'all racing already? He said, no, we're still time traveling. I said, why can't I race? He said, well, they ain't nowhere to park in the pits. You're going you're gonna to take up space that ain't in the pits. He said, so you, you just need to park out here and watch. I said, I didn't come down here to watch. And if I can park in the parking lot, if you're telling me there's a spot in the parking lot, I'll just race from there. I'll just I'll pull out here. He said, you can't do that. You can't park in the parking lot and then come out here and race. Like that's the most unheard of thing ever. But they finally did. I finally convinced them to let me race. And uh, I did well that night. And that they they didn't really like that a whole lot. I was about to say, how did that go over? It didn't go over very well. But uh, they pretty much <laughs> told me everything I did wrong. There's no room for you in the pits and there's no sandbagging. <laughs> yeah, no, no sandbag, which I didn't sandbag back then anyway. Not allowed. It's against yeah, nah, yeah, it was it was just different times. I want to circle back to the parking pot incident. You mentioned you 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 wake your father up by making it rain. Like how what was your relationship like in terms of like how soon did he know about the parking pot incident? Oh, he did he didn't know it till I got home. <laughs> yeah no it, it, it we didn't i didn't you know get on the phone at the track which had been the only way to call him i didn't get on the phone at the track and tell him hey i just gonna let you know i, I lost your car and i ran off in the trees but um we pulled it off the trees and and raced it and won but so no i told him all that well and i told you know i showed him obviously that i won he's super excited and then somewhere shortly thereafter i said you ain't gonna believe this but <laughs> in retrospect i mean what a great way to soften the blow that's probably the only way that conversation goes as well as it went oh most definitely um most <laughs> definitely helped help my case a lot uh and you know obviously i won a thousand dollars that night so had we done any damage to the car i could have bought him two more just like it with that thousand dollars that i won so <laughs> it was and my dad luke my dad you know, this is when trans brakes are first coming out and, and, and we're getting used to these delay boxes and all this stuff. Well, he, uh, you know, the car would get hot. The transmission would get hot when you hot lapped it a little. And the parts wasn't near as good in the late 80s. I know it's hard for you to believe. But the, the, the transmission get hot. Well, the, the trans brake would, would allow the car to, you know, it, it didn't click the same every time. So it allowed the car to go forward, backward, whatever. So Bobby Joe Pennington figured out that's what stage that. locks for, Jim. Stage locks. Oh, gotcha. oh, stage lock. I don't, I don't remember us being able to use that back then. <laughs> but um, so Bobby Joe Pennington figured it out. He figured out how you fix it. He, you know, the little, um, you know, the little funnel style cups that you have that that you get at a water water machine. You know, the little white funnel cup. 
Well, he took one of those and cut the bottom out of it, cut a hole in the floorboard, gorilla glued that sucker right on top of the trans brake solenoid. And he would take cold water every pass and pour it down that cup on top of the trans brake solenoid, Luke Bogacki, until he got, until he knew he had it cool enough that it wouldn't, it would click right every time and allow that thing to sit where he was sitting. And he loved for people to see him doing that. One guy come by one time at Green Valley Dragway and said, Bob, what in the double hell are you doing? He said, I can't, he said, every time I make a run this thing, I come back and I can't keep water in it, in my transmission. He said, I'm putting enough water in this thing <laughs> to fill the radiator and it just won't hold the water. It's always out of water when I get back. He said, you ain't putting water in your transmission. He said, yeah, I'm pouring the water to it as much as I can. It just, it won't hold it. <laughs> <laughs> Innovation at its best. I, um, I know I've told some stories about growing up watching um, Old Man Heffler, Jerry Heffler, Jeff and Jeremy's father. I watched Old Man Heffler rig up a contraption that's, um, oh, I can't think of the name of it now, but you see the videos occasionally where like it starts off with, with dominoes, but it's like this contraption that takes up a room, you know, and it takes 30 minutes to, to trigger oh, yeah. everything, right? Sure. It was something like this inside his Chevy 2 that had an elaborate array of tracks that a marble rolled on. And the idea was he had a toggle switch for the trans brake. Delay boxes have been outlawed like very briefly for maybe a year. So he would start the marble when the top bulb came on and it would eventually fall off one of the ledges and hit the toggle switch. Oh my go. gosh, are That's you right. kidding me? No. That's innovation at its finest, sir. <laughs> that is legendary. That's incredible. I'd love to see a picture of that. I don't think it's as good as pouring water on the transfix alone. Well, especially I mean, through I, the gorilla taped, gorilla glued Dixie cup. Oh yeah, and it wasn't. I know you're probably thinking '68 Cutlass goes eight O's. You're probably thinking this is a really nice, pretty job that he did. <laughs> no, he took a hole saw, cut a hole in the floorboard, and put enough yellow gorilla snot around it to hold it in there uh, <laughs> that you could have, you could have put the rear, you could have held the rear end in with it as much glue as he put around that cup because it, you know, the cup just couldn't fall out. It had to stay there. Let's fast forward a touch in uh, our previous discussion. When we highlighted our, our best three years ever, you, you specifically uh, singled out two accomplishments. It was your, your B&M series pro foot break world championship and the $20,000 footbreak win at, at Piedmont, one of the uh, premier footbreak races, probably the premier footbreak race prior to the, the WFC that, that you ultimately put on. Um, the one that you didn't touch on and that always stood out for me, I think because it was about the time that, that we got to know each other, was there was another 20 grander that I watched you win at Huntsville Dragway. And obviously, even today, winning a $20,000 race, big, big deal. Um, in that day, probably a little bit bigger deal. It's 20 ish years ago. And I think made even sweeter by the fact that if memory serves, you defeated Scotty Richardson in the final, which is still an accomplishment today, but that just didn't happen much in the mid two thousands. Right. Yeah, it definitely did not happen much. And it certainly didn't happen much for my lane. You know, what, what little bit it did happen, didn't happen from my lane. So I, I did feel very fortunate to get by Scotty 
in that final round. And that was a big deal, Luke. Uh, the first 20 grander that we had ever heard of had happened at Piedmont. And I want to say that was 2002. Um, that was, um, shoot, I can't even remember who put that on. But uh, I, anyway, I digress. But George decided he would do one in 2003. He did one. Uh, it was won by, um, I think Anthony Blackburn, if I remember right, won that one. I was there. And then 2004, I got my opportunity, went to the final and uh, was able to get by Scotty there and really good run. He was five. I was 15. Uh, I had a plan the whole time. He and Scotty was holding quite a bit, as you can imagine, back in those days. It doesn't, you know, none of, nobody holds those kind of numbers anymore, but he had a lot in the bag and he was going like 730s. And I think I was dialed 705 or something. And I, uh, my plan was just as soon as he looked, I told everybody, just as soon as I see him look the very first time, I'm going to spray the crap out of this thing to where, you know, the move I make, maybe he doesn't catch it because he, you know, he, I'm doing it as he looks. So I don't even know if that was a good strategy, but I did it and I get down there and I stop on him and my wind light comes on. It was again, at that time, the most incredible day I could ever imagine at the racetrack. Uh, because what that race meant, the internet was starting, as you can imagine, 2003 internet was starting to blow up a little bit and it was starting to be something that, that everybody was on. And at that time, Luke, um, people became legendary very fast on the internet. And I know that happens today, but back then it was like, it was like, a a, a brag show every time every time you turn on the internet people were talking about this guy's unbelievable you know he's won 40 races he's won two hundred thousand dollars doing this and that and everybody i'd heard of from north carolina and kentucky and everywhere else they were all there and of course i knew who scotty richardson was but so to win in a and what i had at the time what i had viewed as the most talented field i'd ever raced in and to get that win and certainly what it meant to me financially um, I think my take was 10,000. I think I won 10,000 that day, left there with 10,000, which was a season's worth of winnings. And I got it in a single day. So uh, just a, still probably uh, the most meaningful win I've ever had. And I hate that I haven't mentioned that in any of the other stuff we've talked about. Probably not my biggest win, but it's the most meaningful I've ever had to, you know, to me personally and what it meant to uh, whatever status I, I achieved at that time. I set the table a little bit earlier for the World Footbreak Challenge. Take me back to inception. How, how did that idea even come about? Uh, walk me through the, the maybe the initial discussions that you and Steve had to that coming to fruition. I love telling this story. Um, Steve and I were uh, guys that got to know each other on the B&M trail. Um, and I love telling the story this way and Steve won't mind it. So Steve was pretty rough back then. And we've talked about that, you know, um, off air, you and I, we, you know, some of those stories and he was just a rough guy. I mean, he slept in his car at the races. He, he ate 
fan of sausage and potted meat. And that's, you know, that's what he had for his lunches and dinners. And he was doing this on the cheap. And you, cap- you threw out some gaudy personal results, you know, 30 some odd wins and in, in nearly 40 finals in a year. Like there were times when that was like three months for Steve at, at one point, right? I mean, that dude dominated. Yeah, that was my most impressive season. Steve did that on the regular. Um, and he would win, you know, he won the Super Pro Track Championship at Fulton in a street-driven Cavalier. And that was not necessarily a knock on the talent in Super Pro at Fulton. There were good racers there. Steve just presented them with something that they couldn't handle, that kind, that, that kind of uh, handicap and, you know, that view on the racetrack. They just couldn't, couldn't deal with. But not that nonetheless, sort of barometer, but around that same time frame, I spent a fair amount of time at Fulton. Like I, I would say that I raced there 20 times. I've never won at Fulton just to put that in context. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it definitely is not an easy place to go win. So uh, he was accomplishing something pretty special there. And ultimately that <laughs> caused him a lot of trouble, but we'll, we'll talk about that another show, but uh, nonetheless, Steve, got uh, you know he he was a guy that was on the internet prior to going to these big races and he um he got to where he was really wanting to test himself so he got out on the bnm trail and uh we got to know one another pretty well somehow there at the races and steve i had a little c-class uh, motorhome and steve had this cavalier well the the first race of the 2003 season uh is at montgomery and steve's there and it's obviously cold it's february uh so he's sleeping in the cavalier and he's he's right outside my my window and you've heard those things crank up that starter sounds like a a, you know you just kick the mule in the in the rear uh that that starter sounded terrible and i think he cranks this thing up about 12 times to warm up that night and i'm like this guy I love him, but he's driving me crazy. So I, I just, I tell him the next day, but you, you just come on in. I'm by myself. Won't you come in sleeping inside my, my motor home? And he's like, no, 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 no. I can't do that. I smoke. And I'm like, well, you can't smoke in here, but you know, you can sleep in here. And he's like, I don't, you know, I don't want to get up and go outside and smoke and all that. And he said, I'm just going to sleep in my car. And finally convinced him to to come in and stay with me and uh just you know from that point on we we became extremely good friends uh his famous line you know one of us one of us in our little group might have been me or somebody else we won one of those races one evening there and uh, i said hey you want to go eat with us and he's like where are you going i said we're gonna go to outback and uh, he said outback where I said, out back to steakhouse. Like, oh, I don't wait. Like, where's that? I don't, I've never been to an outback. Like, oh my God. Like he didn't even know what it was. He was so country and so, so simple living. Um, Obviously very talented on the racetrack, but so we go, we, you know, it just hit it off and, and the years go on and he and I were in a, a, a pretty tight points battle in 2005 in the bnm series we we finished one and two i was fortunate to win that that second championship that year and you know we we were pulling for one another became the best of friends and 
when that season ended, we kept in touch. 2006 comes along. We are, uh, we're traveling to uh, Galen Rollison's, one of Galen Rollison's races at Hub City, uh, as you know, well know in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And uh, we're, our, our trip, he's from North Mississippi, I'm from Birmingham. Our trip to Hattiesburg is the exact same distance and length. So we're going to come through Meridian at the same time. And he's like, let's, let's stop in Meridian and, and eat. There's Applebee's there and we'll, we'll stop there and eat. So we stop and eat and both of us 300 pounds plus at the time. So, you know, there's 600 pound of a man hanging out here at the Applebee's eating. And uh, this is typical Steve style, but it became my style too. I fell in love with the idea. Just order pretty much one of every appetizer they have. And that way you get something good out of all that. And then you get a meal as well. So uh, I don't, I don't know how we stayed 300 plus pounds, but somehow we managed it. <laughs> but So we're, we're uh, eating the appetizers and we start talking about foot brake racers, you know, and how they just have to take a back seat to super pro and our entry fees versus what you could win were not proportional to what super pro was obviously bigger crowds showing up at super pro races, you know, just felt like, man, foot breakers just don't get treated very well. And he, he's like, yeah, man, it'd be cool if somebody like put on a 50 grander and paid round money and you paid third round win and it was you know somewhat affordable and it was just a foot brake race only like no other cars are racing it and he, he he laid out an incredible race and i said man I, oh my gosh that'd be awesome I, I can't wait to go to something like that i wish somebody would do it and he said well i know who can do it we can just get them to i said who and he said us you've lost your freaking mind steve stats you and i can't put on a race he said i guarantee you i can lay out a race that people want to come to and he said i know you don't believe you can but he said you can be the front for this race and promote it and he said people will come he said people respect you people trust you he said i know they trust me too but if you tell them this is what we're doing and we're going to do it. He said, I know people will come. And somehow that crazy son of a gun talked me into doing it. Guaranteeing the purse. He said, it has to be guaranteed. We guaranteed the purse. We didn't have $50,000 between us, but it was pre-entry. So we, we decided that, you know, we'd, we'd do pre-entry and that way, you know, have the money up front and do everything we say and treat them right. And, he said, one thing has to happen. There has to be a 100% refund policy. If you, if you enter and you can't come, no matter what, that has to be in place because I'm tired of hearing about some pre-entry deals that went south and I'm tired of hearing about people keeping people's money. He said, we cannot do that. I couldn't agree more. That's the way I would want it. And he said, which is the whole reason, the whole foundation for this is to do what we would want done. So obviously we built it. We went to the Ultimate 64 that year. I think that was in June, if I remember correctly. We, we had our flyer put together. We started passing that out, and the response was amazing. People were like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. Yes, we'll be there July 2000, or actually April 2007. And um, we got a really good crowd of pre-entries. I think we had about 240 and some change pre-entries for our April 
2007 date. Um, the the week before the original, I know I'm getting long winded here, Luke, and I apologize, but the the week before the original date, uh, Brandon Cross, which is still head of operations there at Bristol, he had just got into that role. They had poured new concrete over the winter and they had their first test in tune a week prior to us getting there. Uh, they test in tune on the weekend that Monday, the week, the Monday prior to us going there, he called me and he said, we got a problem. Uh, the, the, the concrete didn't settle right and it's coming up in chunks around the starting line and everywhere. He said, there's no way we can have a race. I was sick, Luke Bogacki. I, I had forgotten all about that having to get pushed back three months. All right. So yeah, that news comes and you've yeah. got to process it quickly because you got to let people know immediately. We called 240 people and told them, Hey, this, well, first he and I worked for about a day and we got a date and he gave us a date end of July. And, you know, we're like, okay, well, he said, this is the only option. We're book solid. This is the only time you can race. So we took it, of course. We call those 240 people, tell them, I think about, Luke, I'm going to say about 50 of them or so got out. We changed our pre-entry deadline to, to match the time frame of the race. About that same, I think we, we netted a, a, a four-entry loss when it was all said and done. So it, it was really worked out about the same either way. We have the event, there's 338 entries in the 50 grander, which you run it up. So I know you remember it well, um, uh, that the event didn't go off without a hitch, but it went off and went off well. And to, to date back just a little bit to that April date, which was the following week after Brandon called me to tell me the track was coming apart, it snowed, it snowed. It rained and snowed, so there you couldn't have raced there. You couldn't have made a pass, not one pass. It was terrible weather weekend. We get to July, we get a little bit of rain, a little bit of mist that affected us, but as it worked out, and you remember, obviously, the, the next week we got to the curfew, and the next morning, that Sunday morning, had to run the semifinals there, and you guys all pulled up for that, so that was really cool, and then the final with you and Scotty was epic um so you know god works in mysterious ways and we don't always understand why we're being challenged with things that we're being challenged with but that was a blessing in disguise it was it was an incredible series of events that led us to july racing and it's been our our staple uh date since then and it's obviously had 15 years of tremendous success so it's uh, again we're trying to go there in April, can't for obvious reasons that I just mentioned. And then we get to get to have the race in July and it's just been amazing. And it's really changed both of our lives. So uh, that, that whole, that whole sequence of events was, um, was the, the worst and best thing that's ever happened to us. That first year, obviously a huge success. And now it's easy to look back now because the WFC has become the premier footbreak race in the nation. Maybe it was from its inception, if we're going to be completely honest, but extremely successful event for what the better part of a decade. 
but it wasn't always smooth sailing. Was it year two that was such a disaster? Year two was another 50 grander. We were just yeah. following it up with that. Year two obviously was 2008. I think most are very familiar with what happened to our economy in 2008. Uh, diesel had gotten up to $4.69 a gallon on my ride up. I paid that for my, for my truck to fill it up. Uh, we ended up with like 182 total entries in the race. And we got out of there just by luck without losing i mean definitely did not make anything per se but we didn't lose which was really big for us where we were in our lives at the time and um i told steve i just you know i think i think this is the writing on the wall i think we're done this two years into this thing we, we're really lucky last year but not so much this year and i just i don't think we can risk that anymore he said hang on let's just he said let me let me work on this thing a little bit and try to try to see if I can make it fit the he said because people want to come race with us I know they do he said I just need to make this fit people a little better financially and he turned it into three tens at the time it definitely picked back up got entries up in the 280s maybe and it stayed around there he made a change again a couple of years later to pay second round winner which nobody had ever heard of started paying second round winner got over 300 uh, kept improving, improving, changed the purse around a little, shootouts here and there. And before you know it, this thing's just got up in the, that four to 500 range and kind of stayed there for us for a while and has gone very, very well. But Steve has been the mastermind behind the changes and the format uh, changes since the inception of the race. And, you know, I've got my role, I promote it, he's got his role. And, we work really well together and to the point now where, you know, we function independently with the same goals in mind and uh, don't talk near as much as, as we probably need to, or we'd like to, but it's, it's kind of a well-oiled machine. And it, at this point, we just try to make improvements where we can and make sure that we're giving everybody what they pay for and more. And it's worked out very well for us. You probably never could have dreamed that, 20 years ago, you're, you know, arguably at the, at the height of your racing success, never would have imagined that. I don't even know if it's arguable at this point, Jed, I, I think you're best known in this industry, not necessarily for your racing, but as the promoter of the, the Flint, the WFC events and, and now the, the hundred thousand dollar Labor Day race. And as for what the last decade, like the, I think it's fair to say the voice of sportsman drag racing, big dollar bracket racing. Um, so we went down the promoter path, take me down the announcer path. Like how did that even come to fruition? What was your first gig or opportunity behind the mic? Well, my first opportunity behind the mic, Luke, again, these stories are so long, but I, you know, I've been racing since 1984. So you date back a while and you try to catch back up to current times, but 1987, I'm 16 years old. My uncles uh, and my father were all part of an ownership group for Green Valley Dragway, which is in the Gadsden, Alabama area, which is a little over an hour from where I, I live here in Birmingham. Um, we raced on Sundays. We had a legend announcer which I was always enamored with the announcer. I always liked listening to the announcer. 
back in those days, a real good announcer would say, yeah, here's Luke Bogacki and, you know, a 67 Chevy two. And this car came from the factory with a 327 and a two barrel and you could upgrade it to a four barrel and you could get a radio. You know, he just knew everything about the car. And I loved hearing that. Well, we had a legendary announcer at Green Valley named Freddie Kane. Freddie Kane was from Georgia and it was a it was about a two hour two and a half hour ride for him over to to Green Valley every Sunday but he came and did the announcement I just love to listen to him you know I had a blast just just sitting and watching him work well Freddie uh, called in sick one Sunday and my uncle Roy could also do some announcing but he was busy running the the, the races and stuff so he, uh, he said, oh, no, Freddie's called in sick today. And he said, I don't know what we're going to do for an announcer. And I said, I mean, I'll do it if you want me to. And he's like, uh, you think you can? I said, I don't know. I mean, I've listened to Freddie. I can't do what he does, but I think I can call the numbers. You know, I was pretty good at numbers. I, I could, I've been racing a while, so I could figure out the math pretty easy because the announcer still had to figure all that out back then. You didn't just... You didn't just let the computer tell you who won. We were still running those numbers in our head, you know, when I started announcing. So Uncle Roy said, all right. He said, I really ain't got any choice. He said, so you can do it. So I did it that day and had a lot of people come up and say, man, really good job, you know, for somebody so young and really like what you did. And my uncle said, anytime Freddie's sick, you, it's all yours. You got it. So I announced here and there, but it wasn't anything normal or regular. It definitely wasn't normal. And, um, you know, probably in the early 90s, well, it was about 1990 or 91 when Bama Dragway opened up. And uh, Bill Starnes, that built the place, wanted somebody to come run the, the racetrack for him. Uh, I'm, I'm 19 years old. I, I'm about to turn 20, I think, when the place opened. And he wanted somebody to come running for him. He reached out to me. He said, I hear you, you can uh, announce the races and you know the rules. And he, this guy owned an airport. He had no idea. Somebody just talked to him and building a drag strip. He had no idea about drag racing and how it worked. Somebody just told him how rich he was going to get uh, by, by opening a drag strip. Obviously, it didn't, didn't work out. But he um, he hired me to come do the announcing and run the races. Uh, here I am, 20 years old, running a running a racetrack and uh, doing all the announcing. And, you know, I got enough repetition that I got pretty decent at the announcing and had a good time. People enjoyed it. And tracks here and there, when I, like Laster Mountain, when they'd have, they had back in those days, they'd run um, 620 heads up and, and seven Oh, heads up. And when they'd do those heads up races, they'd, they'd just get me to come up and, and do and announce that part. And then they'd have fast eight, uh, which was like their pro mod version of pro mods back then. They'd, they'd get me to come up and announce those, just try to get the crowd excited and talk about the numbers, you know, the numbers, what people wanted to hear. So did that Luke all through the nineties. And obviously when uh, the WFC came along, I did a little mic time there on the little bit of the little cheesy live stream that we had uh, in the early days, you know, with a steel camera and just tied into the microphone where people could hear if you could even get your internet to stream, 
you know, which was a challenge as well. I did that and Peter came to the race year two. And uh, Peter, <clears throat> he, that was the, that know, was the flat punch season. Yeah. Yeah. A few quays roadster. Yeah. I know, I'm going to flat punch that. But uh, anyway, so he's there and he, he just really enjoyed himself and had a good time. And he said, man, you guys really run a great program. He said, I, I, I had a blast and really liked it and just very complimentary. So he and I got to know each other a little better, but it wasn't that well. Then 2010 came along and this first spring fling was happening and, or they were about to put that information out. He and Kyle and Peter reached out to me and said, Hey, I, uh, he said, I've never put on a race before. He said, I'm going to Bristol. I like what you did there. And he said, I can use your help, uh, helping us just make sure we don't miss anything. Cause it was very important to them that they did what they said they were going to do. And they ran a very smooth program. So he said, I want you to come to Bristol, give me a price, what it would take to come to Bristol and just kind of oversee things. Just watch over our shoulder, help us where you can and make sure we don't, uh, you know, fall short of giving our customers what they're paying for. So I said, let me think about that a day or two. I've never been hired to do anything like that. And I called him back and I said, Pete, I got a number. And I said, I finally come up with it. And I said, I don't, I don't know how you're going to feel about it, but it'll take $10,000 and I'll come up there and, and watch over y'all's shoulder. And uh, he went silent. And I, before he could come back, I said, all right, I'm kidding. But I said, I wanted to put that number in your head. So when I give you this one, it won't sound near as bad. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what, I don't know what I think I charged him like $300 a day or I don't know what it was. <laughs> uh, you know, I had travel and all that, but it was a, it was a very mild number. And he said, sounds good. He said, I, I want you to do that. So I did it. I show up. Well, obviously they had a legendary announcer there, Alan Reinhardt. They, they flew him in and, um, you know, he obviously Alan, his, uh, background and record speaks for itself. This guy's unbelievable. He's, that he's, was the year he made a run in Fletcher's Camaro, right? Yes. Yes. It was the only year he was there. So yes. Um, and he's amazing. He's obviously the best that will probably ever do it. And he was rocking along there for about half the day, the first day. And he's like, okay, boys, uh, you know, he's an HRA announcer. So those guys work a little bit and then they disappear for a while. And he's like, it's, it's break time. Peter's like, I never even considered a break. So I don't, he said, I don't know what we're going to do. And I said, well, I could, I'll, I'll step in when You got muted somehow, Jed. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I said, uh, where did I leave you? Uh, Reinhardt taking a break. Yeah, so I, I, Peter's like, I don't know what we're going to do. I said, well, I, I can fill in. He said, well, I know you did it some at your race, but I don't know. I don't know if, you, if you're if you up for this. You think you can do this? And I'm like, no, but you got to have somebody. And so I, I'm in. I'll do it. It was on live feed. So I get in for Reinhardt. And you know, I just do it the way I do it. I, I, I just run down the time slip and give you information top to bottom and 
I will throw in some of this, you know, um, this is what he needed to do to win or what, what would have won or whatever I say. And I, the feedback was incredible, Luke. And I'm not saying that braggadocious. I'm, I'm saying it with as much humility as I can, but people were coming to the tower like, who is this? People are online. Who is this guy? This is unbelievable. They're like, I don't have to watch the race and I can, I can know exactly what happened without having to see the pairs go down the track. So, you know, we're getting this kind of feedback and Peter's coming to me like, man, they're freaking loving you. This is unbelievable. And he said, your tone, he said, your tone is just so, so peaceful, you know, and I wish I could say it like Peter did here. Your tone's just so peaceful and it just fits so well with the area of country we're in. He said, um, if you don't mind, we're going to make a little change because they were getting weather. You know, that, that first year was bad. It almost ended the flings, by the way. I know you know that, but first year weather was bad. And he said, we're going to have to make a little change because of this. He said, if you don't mind, would you tell them? You know, Reinhardt, as good as he is, he's an HRA guy. You know, he'd be like, okay, boys, it's raining. Put them up. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll get back to you in a little while. See what's going on here. We'll tell you. We'll tell you if we need you, when we need you. you know? I'm like, guys, unfortunately, we've had some weather come in. Mother Nature's really dealing with some fits, and uh, I, I hate it, and we apologize to you, but we're trying so hard. We are going to give you every ounce of effort we have. We're going to get this dry. And, you know, and Peter's like, I really want you delivering the bad news. He said, I love Alan, but I, I need you delivering the bad news <laughs> the rest of the weekend. So he got me to do that. I filled in for Alan. It, I wasn't even gone from the races before offers had come in from other uh, promoters saying, you know, how much to, for you to come announce this race or this race. And uh, before you know it, you know, I was really just kind of blown away with it and I was getting opportunities and I was, I just became one of the, the guys that did the premier events around uh, the, the area that I was in and, you know, I went to South Georgia and then, uh, you know, Bristol, obviously, and doing the millions and working with the folk family. And I don't know, it just took off. It was, uh, it was nuts, Luke. It really was. I know that was a long story, but it was, that was a crazy series of events from the late eighties to 2010. Well, not to, to toot your own horn, more than necessary but I, I will speak to, to two things there having been in the promoter shoes as well as the racer shoes I will say um, you do have a gift for delivering the bad news and doing it in a way that makes it feel like it was all the racers idea right? <laughs> that's a gift that I think is very unique and very much appreciated on the prom from, from the promoter standpoint for sure um and then secondarily, like you said, how almost immediately the, the racers um, gravitated to your style. And that's not a mistake. Like it is, it is very unique. And I feel like you've, you've set a template for many that have come behind you uh, or, or come after you, I guess would be the best way to put that. But you have a unique blend of explaining what's going on in a way that the racer can follow and appreciate. And yet it's not over the head of the average spectator and it's entertaining enough that when it is, it's still engaging. And I think that that mix 
is really, really hard to come by. Well, I appreciate that very much. And I do take pride in that. And and I certainly in some of the, the really good announcers today, you know, the the Ryan Gleghorns and the Jake Hodges and many others, I couldn't begin to name them all. But when I hear a little bit of what I do and what they're doing, it is it's humbling to say the least. And, you know, it's the ultimate um, form of, of flattery because I know where those guys picked some of those things up they all have their own unique style which makes them great but I know where they picked some of those things up and that makes me feel real good you know the the mission is exactly what you what you said it's it's explain the race tell them what happened exactly what happened give them as much information as you can without over talking um shed a little light on what it would have taken to change the outcome the best way you can needed to take 12 or less or, you know, cut the finish line in half, which is hard to do when you took four thou, but you needed to take two thou, you know, that, that 50%, when you take 50 and need to take 25 is much easier as you know, than to take four to two. So talk about that stuff and put meaning to it, entertain the crowd. What are you talking don't, about? That's only 2000s difference. That don't all sound like too much, but uh, entertain the crowd, be a, uh, be the racer's announcer. That's who I wanted to be. I, I, did, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't announcing to the crowd, to the fans. I was announcing to the racers. So I wanted to be the racer's announcer and, and make, uh, make it, make them feel like, again, they didn't have to watch the race to hear what was going on. And, um, you know, add some personal flavor. You know, the, the, the fun I've had over the years for asking for a Coke or a glass of milk or some cantaloupe or, you know, apple pie, and they, they always respond like they, you know, the, the bets, you know, we'd be in Vegas and Jeff Foster would say, I'll tell you what, if you get, if you get some apple pie up here, I mean, that would be huge. And, you know, you call out and somebody, they might not have it in the motorhome. A guy comes in from the grocery store, you know, I, I left, I left, went to the grocery store and I got this for you. And uh, I brought some vanilla ice cream to go with it, you know, and it's like, they just want to, they just want to make you happy. And my whole job was to make them happy and have them enjoy themselves. Yet all they wanted to do was make me happy. And it didn't hurt to call their name out on the, the PA. Hey, I want to, I want to thank Luke Bogacki for this amazing apple pie. You know, people want to hear their name, especially when they're not a racer. So you take racer support and you, you, you announce and you give them a big shout out, you know, those shout outs, you know, how cool the shout outs were. And so that stuff was amazing to me and so wonderful. And I enjoyed it as much as the people listening. Obviously I worked for you, uh, enjoyed that. You, you had me there as much as I could be there. And, um, and it was an open invitation to come work for you and you along with the folks and Peter and the folks in South Georgia, uh, Roland and Kim and, Everybody that I've worked for over the years, I, I've never been treated bad. It's all been wonderful. So the, the announcing has created some relationships that I cherish deeply today. And it has definitely given me as many or more memories uh, of doing some special things in racing that I never would have even touched had it not been for announcing. So, you know, racing Sean Langdon in Vegas uh, racing you in Vegas and uh, in a, a crazy good run 
then you go on to win the million. You know, those are memories that, Luke, I never would have even dreamed of being able to do it, much less actually get to do it on my dime. And then you get to go be a part of that because you can announce a freaking race. How incredible was that? It is unbelievable. It's so incredible to, to look back retrospectively on the little things that you maybe didn't think much of at the time that set into place, you know, what these big events that ultimately led you to where you are today. I may be reading into this a little bit because like, I didn't realize, for example, that, that you had experience running a racetrack. I didn't realize that you had a fair amount of time behind the, the microphone under your belt, you know, at an early age that that set a foundation for both putting on your own events and, you know, the, the trajectory that you had as an announcer. I may be overemphasizing this, but I feel like not so much from an ability perspective, but from a um, perspective of what others, how others perceived you, you mentioned your involvement in, with George Howard in the GM Performance True Street class. I feel like, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, your role there and the way that you did it and the following that the BNM series had, I feel like that set the stage in terms of the way that racers specifically in that market believed in you, trusted you. Like, I feel like that was the platform that allowed the WFC to be successful in its early years. And that ultimately set the stage for your announcing career. Like, I feel like that was a huge catalyst, again, not so much for your personal growth as much as it was for the way that everyone else viewed you. Is that fair? Oh, it's crazy how fair it is. Look, it's crazy that because we didn't discuss this stuff. Um, this was this was totally um, something that that you put together and, and we didn't talk about these topics for you to recognize that time frame and that specific uh, group that I was in as as a, a, a turning point is amazing because it it happened at Bristol, if you remember the story correctly, for the first time. Well, just in that little day and a half that I had to prepare for it, I, I, I figured out where I was going to be in the Bristol Tower. So I was working with Bristol staff and I was dealing with their people. Well, I built relationship with a couple of guys there that helped me get in touch with them for the WFC. And, you know, again, just one one connection leads to another. But, yeah, it was a you know, it, it was a, a turning point for me in terms of being able to um, present uh, the, the class and give the information and, and help these people learn just a little bit about what we were going to do. And then 30 minutes of that and then go out on the racetrack and teach them how to race. And, you know, that these students were just like tuned in like I was the most important person in the room for the for the first time in my life I'm I'm the center of attention and whatever I say Luke they believed it and they trusted it and it was incredible because you you don't realize the impact that you have and you you do it every day in rate bracket this is bracket racing elite and everything you do but to have people just trust what you're telling them and then try to implement exactly what you're telling them to do uh, week after week on that tour was just amazing to me. And it certainly did elevate me to uh, another level in the sport, if you will. 
All right, I got a couple of quick hitters to close out. I don't have rapid fire, but I got a couple of quick hitters. Good. Most memorable day at the racetrack on a positive. Uh, most memorable day at the racetrack on a positive is definitely the day that uh, I let my father's car get away from me and win my first super pro race. It was right off of the heels of me winning my first race ever not long after that. And then to, to go be able to do that, my father's car was extremely memorable, especially with all that happened. The day she rattled a little loose. Yeah, she, she rattled a little loose on me. My, my chain and binder, not my straps or my chain and binders, my chain and binder come loose. Perhaps this is one and the same, or it certainly had the, the potential to be, but when I say most memorable day at the track, maybe for the wrong reasons, what comes to mind? Well, unfortunately for you, uh, you're involved um, doing, a, doing a big wheelie at the Jig Summer Door Car Shootout and uh, my shifter cable falling off of my shifter linkage underneath the car when the air shifter hit it about 200 feet out. It shifted it straight to reverse because my lockout was eliminated when the cable fell off and me crashing my car into the the wall at your event. Uh, very fortunate, by the way, that wasn't much worse. That was a, that was a very scary thing. But the fact that JJ was there, he was still young. He was devastated. It, it just ripped his little heart out. Um, and then, you know, you guys getting him down there to me and making sure he knew I was okay and all that stuff. Just that was absolutely my worst day at the racetrack. Coming back the next year and winning should be honorable mention for most memorable day at the track because JJ got to interview me. I won that next year on Saturday, same day that I wrecked the year previous. And that was a really big win for me and really cool. And I beat maybe the winningest racer and Jeg summer door car shootout history and Jeremy McKaggy. So, um, that was, uh, that was really cool. It was, I will, uh, I will never forget the look on JJ's face when I got to him. That was my, uh, my first instinct was to go find JJ. By the time that I got to him, he was in Lucas Walker's arms. Yeah. <laughs> so Lucas had him, Lucas was taking care of him. And, uh, yeah, no, that, uh, I don't know, that scene really, it hammered home. I don't know the 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 family aspect of racing that I I I, I grew up with, but kind of uh, reiterated what I've got coming. You know, and and I think just the idea that while we're all out here having fun, um, you know, there's there's a lot riding on this, and that could have been a whole lot worse. So, yeah, no doubt about it. You about to get that Roy Firestone moment you wanted. So, so there you go. Quit, quit talking about it. <laughs> I'll lighten the mood a little bit with your last one. We have heard the uh, the Cutlass rattle a little loose. We have heard the uh, Super Chevy story with the burnout underneath the Atlanta Dragway Tower. Epic. I believe the podcast audience, we're going, we're going way back, but I believe the podcast audience is privy to your father running over a dog at Fulton. I think we've heard that story. Yeah. I'm putting you on the spot, but can you give me something out else that sticks out from your youth? Uh, maybe your early years of competition, one more good Jed or Bobby Joe, or perhaps JJ story to close this out. 
<laughs> well, you know, normally I would tell the, um, the, the story of passing tech at the Gators, but you know that one as well. Uh, Luke, unfortunately, this one won't be a drag racing story, but it is a racing story. Um, probably one of the funniest things that I've ever done. I went dirt track racing one time and, um, you know, I know this is not far off of us having the, the, the competition about um, a sportsman drag racer, uh, Olympic athlete or adult film star, but this is probably the most fun I've ever had in a car with my clothes on. Um, there might have been some more fun somewhere in my past in a vehicle, but as a chance I was naked. But nonetheless, I went, uh, my cousin had a, as a 70 Chevelle dirt track car, and uh, this car was, um, you know, it was good stuff, uh, had an illegal engine, so it was faster than it should have been, um, it's automatic, it's got like a 500 gear, you know, this thing is a handful, and I ain't ever even been to a dirt track, much less raced on one, and he bet me, he and Jimmy Wesson, I know you know Jimmy, and uh, they bet me that I wouldn't race this car on dirt, because I'm just an old drag racer, I said, you darn right, I'll race it. You just tell me when. This is summertime. So they they rock along. We're going we're gonna to get this car ready. We're going to race it. Okay, we'll get it ready. Just tell me where to be, and I'll be there. Well, finally, like the second week in December, and I don't remember what year this was. It was like, it was like 2003-ish, 2000. No, it wasn't 2003. It might have been 2002, but 2004. I don't know. But anyway, they tell me where I show up. Second week in December, I'm racing in Arkadelphia, Alabama, and I get there and, uh, you know, they, they've already told me I got to wear this fire suit and I got to get some tear offs for my helmet because there ain't no windshield, you know, you don't get mud on your face and I'm like, this, this sounds like the worst idea ever, but I'm doing it. So I show up and I get there and my cousins um, parked in the pits and he's he says his car ain't it wasn't, unloaded it wasn't holiday beach it was not holiday beach they let him park like, in the pits some, yeah some well the pits are outside the the this not the typical park inside the round track this the pits are all outside so we're parked outside the track and he says i ain't unloading yet because he said uh rumor is ken schrader's gonna be here and i'm like you talking about the guy that runs nascar this is arkadelphia alabama uh, y'all look it up He's like, yeah. He said he races for Federated Auto Parts, and they're saying that he drove all night from Charlotte to get here because he's got he's got one more race on his schedule that he has to run to get his full sponsorship, and this is the only race in the South. This is the only one he can make. So I'm like, this is unbelievable. I'm fixing a race in the same race Ken Schrader's at. So sure enough, Schrader shows up, and my cousin Billy, which is absolute fruitcake, says. All right, I'm parking right by him. He said, we're going to go over here and park by him. And he did. Look, I'm talking about our fumes off of our exhaust was getting in his trailer. He's parked so close. And Schrader, Schrader comes out, my, my cousin Billy. Now, this is a 70 Chevelle with the number duct taped on the side, number one. It's duct taped. And... um it's flat black and he see Schrader comes out my cousin Billy comes over there and says hey uh Ken Billy Pennington yeah hey, yeah good to meet you and, you know Ken's like he's trying to just kind of be in as inconspicuous as he can but he's Ken Schrader and he's at Arkadelphia so he he 
says, I, you don't mind us parking here, do you? And Ken's like, no, 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 you can park anywhere you want to. Billy said, okay. He said, there's going to be a lot of people over here looking at this Chevelle, and I just don't want them to get in your way. He's like, okay. So Ken, great sense of humor, figures it out. This is the kind of guy I'm dealing with. I'm going to have fun. So he gets talking to me. What, what you doing? I'm, I'm a drag racer, and this is my first time to ever do this. He said, you're going to throw rocks at that drag car when you get back. No, I don't think so, but whatever. So I'm looking forward to it. So I go out in the, in the warm-up laps. And I, I know I need to speed this up. Go out in the warm-up laps, and I'm testing this thing out. And just, bah, bah, you know, standing on it just to see how bad it spins. And I turn sideways. I'm having a blast out there in the warm-ups. And, and I, I, I wasn't doing much, apparently, because when I got back to the pits from warm-ups, Ken Schrader said, hey, uh, he said, you did pretty good out there. He said, uh, for your first time, he said that that motor grader was barely getting around you down there on the bottom. He said <laughs> he was running like six mile an hour. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I'll speed it up when the race comes. So I make a couple of uh, runs there, a couple of green flags in the, in the heat race, and I can't figure out when I'm supposed to go. I can't figure out when the green flag is going to drop and I'm la nearly last in line out of eight or 10 cars. And so I finally figure out the third time the green flag drops that I'm as soon as the first car gets about halfway down the straightaway, the flag man is dropping. I am ready. I'm fixing to go 500 tree on him. I'm ready. So I'm watching him. I'm in the turn and I, that green flag drops and they done told me, Luke, they told me don't, don't hop you know they ah, they told me just go on the gas soft foot it but i couldn't oh i went drag racer i bah, stood on that thing and it just stood up in the back bah, 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 bah. i'm trying to get it under me well when it finally hooks it's pointed in the pits and the, the empty pits in the middle of the track so I, it find, and when it bit boy she took off and there wasn't nothing i could do you ain't dealing with a whole lot of racetrack I jumped the berm. There's a little berm down there, just like a, like a, uh, you know, a bumper to keep you from going into pits. I jumped it. That whole thing come off the ground. When I did, you know, the gas pedal, I'm, I'm, I'm bouncing and I'm just run. I'm, I'm gouging it and letting out. It's just the most embarrassing thing ever. I've got 15 people there watching me. They're super excited to see me run dirt. I finally get this thing back up on the track. Of course I caused a yellow flag. And uh, I get back up on the track. Well, here we go, heat race again. And I, this time I, bah, and I get, no, I finished the heat race. I'm in the feature. But I get out there when the green flag comes on and it's saying she don't, uh, it don't just like, I'm like, boy, when you just saw footed, it don't really go crazy like that. Well, I ran two laps and I had uh, transmission fluid coming inside the car, getting on me transmission fluid getting on me while i'm racing luke i had to pull a tearaway with transmission fluid on it mm. and it smokes inside the car and i i pull i'm like i give my guy behind me the signal that i'm going out i'm going out the gate to get you know I'm, I'm a pro racer here so i get outside and they come running up to me oh don't get out i'm trying to get out i'm 300 pounds i'm trying to squeeze out of this dukes of hazard and I, I, they're like don't get out don't get out we got to move you we got to move you you're on fire you're catching the grass on fire <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, no, and there's fire starting to come in the car, and they put it out, and they get me moved, and I finally get out of this thing. Well, it turns out when I jumped that berm, when I come down, I hit, I crushed a transmission pan, and she couldn't breathe, and the fluid had nowhere to go but out the dipstick, and there's no windshield, so it just ran up in there with me, soaked me full of hot transmission fluid, and my day was over. I did pass three cars in the, in the feature. Wow. Um, 
one of them was upside down and uh, two of them were sitting still. One had their whole rear axle ripped out of it, but I did pass them like they were sitting still. So I, I finished seventh in a race that I didn't even finish out of 10. So pretty incredible day at the dirt track is my first and last attempt. Did you get any final closing words of wisdom from Ken Schrader? Yeah, uh, Ken advised me to stick to, if I was anywhere halfway decent at the drag racing, just to stick to it. But he did, he did say privately, he didn't want my cousin Billy to hear this. He said, I don't know if you're that bad a driver or if you just had uh, way more engine than you had car. He said, I, I, I ain't sure because he saw me out there struggling and we were illegal. We had too many cubic inches. And my cousin already told me if we win, we ain't going to get the money because they're going to, they're just going to throw us out of here. So <laughs> don't win, but he didn't have to worry about that. Ken did tell me he thought I'd be better with better equipment. <laughs> That's, I, I, I've heard that story, but it's been a few years. So thank yeah. you for that big jet. Yeah, um, you're welcome. I know this is a drag racing podcast, but that was, that was a good time. All right. That's all the questions that I've got for you. This was insightful and entertaining. I think this went over a lot better than you envisioned. Um, thank you for this, Big Jed. Let's wrap things up. Yeah, it was a blast, Luke. I really appreciate you doing it. And, I, and if anybody's listened this far, I appreciate you listening as well. And um, I'm, I'm, I couldn't be more blessed in my life and, and the opportunities I've been given. So it was fun to share with you guys. But I am glad it's over. I hope you are too. Um, this is uh, this is the end of the show, and we definitely want to uh, have you reach out if you if you got a, a round track story or drag racing story of your own you want to tell. Reach out to us there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. You can send us a message, or you can put it out there public for anybody to see. We'd love to hear from you, and we need to hear from you, um, Luke. I don't know if you got any shouts out of out of that, but if you got some, man, I'm I'm ready. Shouts. Ken Schrader, Federated yeah. Auto Parts. Shouts to the duct tape number one. That's classic. <laughs> Shouts to appetizers, all of them. Oh my goodness, yes, they're delicious. Shouts to Gorilla Glue. <laughs> Shouts to the Cutlass that rattled a little loose and parking paws. Oh. Most of all, Shouts to Jim Cornett. Yes, awesome. Look, that was the best shout list you've had in quite some time. That was awesome. Thank you for that. Um, guys, uh, we're both on Twitter. Reach out to us. Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. We would love to hear from you there as well. Tell us that you heard the show. Tell us what you liked and didn't like or what you thought was funny, not funny, whatever. We need to hear from you. But um, again, thank you for listening to my story. It was fun to tell. We look forward to talking to you again real soon about much more gooder sportsman drag race. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers. 
that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is, at each event, there are 100 plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elitist for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.